We will join our good friend, Mr. Al Bat. It's four minutes after 10. And Al, it's a beautiful day. How are things over near Heartland? Oh, it's a, it's a lovely day. And I look outside and there are white-throated sparrows. Um, they're, they're just everywhere. I look at the lawn and it looks like the lawn is crawling with <laughs> these guys. And uh, the white-throated sparrows sing, even though it's fall, uh, albeit a less sprightly song than in the spring. And they whistle. And um, I used to say, you know, because they're in Minnesota, they whistled old Sven Peterson, Peterson, Peterson. But it occurred to me the other day, I don't know anybody named Sven Peterson. So now I think they sing old Sam Peterson, 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 because I know quite a few Sam Petersons, so maybe that's a little bit more Minnesota than than Swen Peterson. I don't know how many little Swens there are out there, if we've got a generation of Swen Petersons coming up or, or, or not. You know, I, I'm sure we used to have Swen, Ole, and Lars Petersons, just like in all the jokes, but it's, uh, uh, it's just I love hearing that whistle. Like I say, it's not... It's not the testosterone-laced one that we hear in the spring, but it's still a wonderful song. I just love that plaintive whistle that they make. I have a lot of juncos in my yard, and I'm always happy to see those guys. I, I just think they're beautiful birds. And you, when you see them fly, they have a couple white feathers on the edges of their tail, the left and right side. and They're just uh, they're really cool birds. Janet Chandler said, I had my first one here on, on um, October 2nd this year. was the first Junko in, in my yard that I saw anyway. Janet Chandler said she had her first Junko in the yard on October 11th. She said there were large flocks of robins in the, in the yard on the same day. Cindy Drill of North Mankato saw her first Junko on October 10th. Dave Johnson said juncos were back at my feeders in Lesseur on uh, October 11th. And Dr. Michael Henry said the juncos were back on October 11th at our feeders in Rochester. So uh, a lot of folks were getting them on the 10th and the 11th. Chad Hines, Chad's of Mankato, said Ruth Amundsen thought she heard a tufted titmouse at Rasmussen Woods, north of the Nature Center, on Friday. I could not find the bird late yesterday afternoon. Let's see. Could not find the bird late Saturday afternoon, was not able to relocate the bird with her about 20 minutes after she saw it this morning in spite of a 40-minute search. She's confident, and hopefully the bird will stick around. Anyone know who's filling the feeders down there? It looks like they could use some new feeders, too. Maybe I can find one I'm not using. I thought I heard a Carolina wren southeast of the Nature Center, but that bird wouldn't cooperate either. Either way, it sounds as if this is a good place to look for birds right now. Also found there, yellow-rumped warbler, orange-crowned warbler, ruby-crowned kinglet, song white-throated and Lincoln sparrows, northern flicker, and purple finch. Friday at the Bethany Hawk Watch, we had 120 raptors, house finch, purple finch, pine siskin, American goldfinch, and red crossbill. Thursday, I did some birding in Blue Earth County. The highlights were LeConte sparrow, fox sparrow, Harris's sparrow, hooded merganser, and ruddy duck. 
On October 15th, Jim and Ruth Amundsen heard the titmouse again at Rasmussen Woods. I went down there from 4.30 to 6 p.m. and did not find it again. Apparently, early morning is the best time to go. They were there a little after 8 a.m. While I was there, I put on my knee boots and filled the feeders with some sunflower from my stock. There's a lot of standing water around the feeding station. That didn't keep the mixed flock of sparrows from feeding there. Song, Lincolns, white-throated, and Junkle. While sitting there, I also had a purple finch and a pine siskin calling from the cottonwoods off to the southeast. Just as I was packing up, the chickadee sounded off like there was a predator that had flown in, but I could not find the bird. But when I got to my car, a barred owl called from the same area. <clears throat> yeah, a tufted titmouse is a... Uh, a very good bird for this area. Uh, there's parts of the United States where they're just uh, everywhere. I was working at Mahoney State Park in, uh, oh, it's Ashland, Nebraska, between Lincoln and Omaha here recently, and there were just tufted titmice everywhere, and it was really cool to see. They're one of my favorite birds. Now, why do they call I, it mice? I don't know. <clears throat> Mouse or mice. Yeah, I guess they just <laughs> kind they... of reminded people. I I don't know how that because uh, when I hear mice, it doesn't bring up real pretty images. <laughs> yeah, they're oh, they remind me sort of of chickadees. So they're kind of cool little guys, you know. And and we have uh, white breasted nuthatches. I always called them uh, tree mice, just because the way they moved around okay. on the bark and everything was kind of mouse like. And I've had one tufted titmouse in my yard. He was here for one day, and it was really cool being in his company. Helen Knapp of Albert Lee, that's K-N-A-P-P, asked if it's okay to feed pumpkin seeds to birds. You know, pumpkin and other varieties of squash seeds provide a highly nutritious food for our avian amigos. So you can put the seeds out just as they're scooped from the pumpkin, or you can dry them naturally or in an oven. Well, they're supposed to be uh, really good for us, too, so I wouldn't, you know, I'd imagine they'd be good, good for the birds and animals, too. They are, and uh, I guess the only difference is we like to season them a little bit, and, and we and wouldn't have to them. do that. <laughs> yeah, we wouldn't have to do that for the birds. I, I think Helen was the first one, and if, if it wasn't her that asked us, I apologize, but she said, when do the first monarch butterflies arrive at their winter roosts in Mexico? And the first monarchs arrive at their winter home in Mexico by the 1st of November. Uh, there were some native Indians down there that called them harvester butterflies because they appear when it's time to harvest the corn there. And the Mexican holiday, Day of the Dead, occurs when the monarchs appear. And according to traditional belief, the monarchs are the souls of ancestors who return to Earth for an annual visit right around that time. So it's quite a celebration when the monarchs return. Our, I spoke a little bit about seeing uh, Junkos and Chad Hines and uh, Dr. Michael Henry, Dave Johnson, Cindy Drill, Janet Chandler, and the rest all were saying when they saw them, uh, somebody asked our Junkos, residents of southern Minnesota all year. No. The, their summer residents in Minnesota in the coniferous forests of the northeast and north central regions. And they're dark-eyed juncos that we have here, and they're often called snowbirds because people believe that their return from their northern breeding grounds foretells the return of cold and snowy weather. 
And another source of the nickname may be the Junko's white belly and gray back, which has been described as leaden skies above and snow below. Um, a New Hampshire study on the foraging habits of the Junkos found that they spent 65% of their time on the ground, 20% of their time in shrubs, and 16% in saplings or low trees. And they were never observed in the canopy of large trees. So if you're looking way up, you're not going to see juncos because they're not going to be way up in the tops of trees. Uh, Verna Hoppy asked, or said, last Saturday, lots of juncos stopped for a short visit but we're gone Sunday morning. Why didn't they stay a little longer? Well, that's a great question, Verna. They probably headed farther south. Adult juncos, especially the females, tend to migrate farther and begin migration earlier. So if we took a look at winter flocks, if we saw a flock of juncos in the winter, about 20% of them here in Minnesota would be females. If we went to Alabama and did the same survey, 72% of that flock would be female. Hmm. And the reason on that is that the male juncos, they, they're warriors. They just think about that breeding territory. Man, they need to get back in time to get to that territory. So they like staying as far north as they possibly can, for the most part so they can get back there in time, be the first bird there on territory. The females, they could care less. They know when they get there, there will be a male waiting for them. They don't have to say, oh, i got to get back there. You know, in so real life, though, it seems like that the um, the males or the females always outnumber the males, so I think it's opposite with humans. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> well, it's, it's just, um, I just think they're lovely birds, and it's great to see them. I had this question. I don't know if there was something in the paper or on the radio. Or I got three questions from people saying, is Woody the woodpecker based on the pileated woodpecker? Hmm. I, and I don't know how many young folks, if Woody the woodpecker is still on a cartoon network or anything, if, if young folks are very familiar with Woody the woodpecker. Uh, Walter Lance, he was the creator of Woody the woodpecker. And he wrote that while he and his wife, Grace, were honeymooning in a California cabin, an acorn woodpecker entertained them. Now, acorn woodpeckers uh, gather acorns, and they put them in holes in a tree. And I believe at this time, if I remember correctly from his book, they were putting the acorns under the shingles of the roof of the cabin oh, that uh, they were staying in. So his wife, Grace, said to Walter, why don't you make him into a character? And Woody the Woodpecker was born. Wow. So it's, uh, But they look, Woody looks very much like a pileated woodpecker when you see him. So he's, uh, um, I haven't seen Woody the Woodpecker for, oh man, I can't remember the last time. But there's, um, this happened, I want to say it happened last winter, but I'm just getting around to talking about it. A raven was caught on video plucking and shredding a parking ticket from under a windshield wiper of a car in downtown Yellowknife. And it's unclear if the raven was disputing the ticket or just mischievous <laughs> or was hungry or what was going on. It was uh, interesting because the officials, city officials, 
police officials said the ticket still needed to be paid, which seemed odd because how can a guy pay his ticket when he doesn't even know he got one? You right. Know, it's, it's like the dog did my ate my homework, the, the bird chewed up my ticket. So I, yeah. yeah, it's not my fault. Hey, I've got a great poem uh, that our good friend John from New Alm sent us. Okay. And remember I told you I had misplaced his letter? Well, I found yep. it, and he's got an original poem. It was actually published in the Senior Perspective. And oh, so, sure. Yeah, it was just last month, and it's by John Pfeiffer of New Alm. And this is the poem, and it's very, very lovely. It's, Soon south the birds will fly, to summer we are saying goodbye. Leaves yellow, orange, and brown, soon all will be on the ground. Cicadas are silent, crickets more quiet. Roll up your outside carpet of green, soon only white will be seen. Ah, oh, nice, John, nice. And, boy, that's so true. We still have quite a few leaves here, but uh, uh, I was talking to somebody at Mayo yesterday, and they were from, uh, oh, up by Ely. And they said all their leaves are pretty much on the ground. It just everything has dropped now up there. So they said they're still pretty colors, but you just have to look down to see them instead of looking up. But uh, yeah, John, thanks, man. I appreciate it. Senior Perspective is a, a cool newspaper. So it's so where does that go to? I guess I'm not real familiar with it. Everywhere, I think. Oh, is it okay? It's, I guess maybe it, I'm not on the mailing list apparently because it says. The senior perspective. It says Glenwood, Minnesota. I'm looking at the address here. So uh, you have must be have to be officially a senior, and I must not be considered that yet. Uh, no, no. All you have to do is walk over and pick one up. Oh, I was really? At, uh, oh. I was at the Happy Chef the other day having breakfast, and I have trouble eating breakfast without a newspaper. I get mm-hmm. the shakes, and <laughs> I just too. can't keep things on my fork. And, <laughs> and uh, there was a pile of senior perspectives in there, so I went over and grabbed one and. and read it and it um, made breakfast uh, the breakfast was wonderful everything tastes well but newspapers they they just add something to it i don't know i guess it's a lifetime of uh, eating breakfast with uh, in the company of a newspaper you know so. when we were growing up we always saw my my parents too would read the newspaper and i had a, a friend downstairs who asked how we get our boys to read because our boys are ravenous readers they are reading all the time i says well they need to see you read so i mean that's the thing right. whether it's a newspaper whether it's a magazine or something and that is really if the kids see you reading she says well we really don't read well there's your why should they then if they, you don't so i said even if you have to fake it you should pretend you're reading because your kids will pick up on that. That's uh, I spoke at a reading is fundamental thing, and uh, uh, some somebody asked they had a question and answer thing, and they said, "Why are you a reader?" And boy, I had to answer me. I said, "My parents and mm-hmm. and my older siblings too." Yes. Because they were always reading. They always had their nose in a book or a newspaper or something. So it just it just seemed natural. And I learned to read by reading my brother's Field and Stream and Outdoor <laughs> Life. And I'd say, Where, which one is the fox? And he'd circle the fox word, you know. So then I had fox down. And I learned by animals and birds and things. And he would underline them and circle them in the magazine. And that's how I learned to read. So. Well, my sister, my younger sister, Cheryl, she, when we were younger, we had so many books. I mean, we had built-in bookshelves. We had, you know, freestanding bookshelves. We just had books everywhere. But my younger sister, when she was younger, she made up a card catalog system like they have in the library so so each book she put a card in and we would have to check out our own books and if we returned them late we would have to pay fines to (laughs) 
on our books, and she did. But you know what? It's it's ironic because now she is a a high school librarian. But we were yeah. kids. We had to pay if we you know returned our own book overdue. It was like a penny or something, but still, every book had a little you know card in it. And so, so yeah, I guess we were a family of um, definitely readers. And my sister took it to the next extreme and became a librarian. Do they still find people? I always bring mine back early. I think they do because um, I know, especially when we've uh, returned, uh, you can only check out videos for a short, a lot shorter time, and so we've, yeah, we've we've had to pay some fines. And then every now and again, they'll have an amnesty day just to get their books back because people are too scared to come back. <laughs> what a wonderful place libraries are. I, I've I've mentioned this often when my mom and dad would go down to Albert Lee to transact business at the courthouse or something, pay taxes or go to a meeting or something, they would throw me out at the Carnegie Library. <laughs> and it was one of those old every step kind of creaked or made, there were sounds to everything you did in there. If you just sighed, it kind of echoed all through the through the library. And the minute I got in there, I got shushed. That was before <laughs> I even had a chance to say anything. But what a wonderful place. I just The whole world was in there. And for a little boy, in my case, who'd never been anywhere other than northern Iowa and southern Minnesota, it just opened up all these venues for me that I could learn about the world. And it was just an amazing, amazing place, a library, and it still is to this day. I have, it's sad news, there's a company called Eagle Optics, and I worked with Eagle Optics a lot when I was president of the Minnesota Ornithologist Union and things, and um, even our local Audubon chapters, and they would come and they would uh, set up uh, spotting scopes and binoculars, working up at Hawk Ridge, they would come there too, and I was always happy to see them. And people could try them out, and of course they were selling them. They're from uh, Middleton, uh, Wisconsin, by Madison, and they were just really good. They came to so many of our birding festivals, and I just looked forward to seeing you. Kind of got to know the guys and gals that worked there. They are sadly ceasing operations on December 31st. Oh. And they are so grateful, they said to their customers, so they're offering discounts 20% or more off all products. So that's all these binoculars and spotting scopes. If I know a lot of folks from around the area have uh, purchased things from Eagle Optics. If anybody's interested, you can sure check them out. If you just go to eagleoptics.com or you can call us an 800 number, it's 289 one one three two. So that's one eight hundred two eight nine one one three two. And it's just uh, it's just sad. I, they've been around for uh, many many years, and um, things are just tough for a lot of retailers. Mm-hmm. And sadly, they're one of them that's uh, got to get out of the way, I guess, for for the new things and the new way we shop and the new way we. We do things today. Now, did they do online? Because it seems a lot of people are going to, to online, or was it mostly online now? They they had a lot of stuff online. Oh, okay. Yeah. And still. they have great binoculars and I don't know how many brand and endless brand names. And they were always um, a wonderful place to, to call or visit to get information. Uh, if you had a question about 
maybe the binoculars you had, or should I get this kind of binocular, or should I get this kind of binocular? They produce videos and all these kind of things that you could go to, and um, they were very helpful, and I had a lot of friends that worked there through the years. Uh, um, again, sadly, none of them are working there anymore because I suppose they could see the handwriting on the wall, so they thought, boy, you know, it might be a good idea if I got out and actually found another job. Um, Lucas, and I'm not sure if I'm thinking that's a first name. It could be a last name, L-U-C-A-S, said, how do birds chew food? They don't have any teeth. Yeah. You know, some birds, uh, some geese sometimes look, uh, their bills look like they have teeth, but they, they don't have teeth. You know, we always hear, it's as scarce as hen's teeth, and that's a, a great saying because they don't have teeth. But you watch a, a little goldfinch that will come into your feeder. They can manipulate their food with their tongues. So they'll, they'll use their tongue to move it back and forth from one side, maybe the bill to the other. And they'll just keep kind of chewing on it. And finally they're able to crack seeds with manageable pieces with their bills. And if you're a cardinal or a grosbeak with those big bills, they just kind of grab the seed and snap it. They just have such strong bills. So once it's got it to a manageable size where they can eat it, the bird will swallow the food and then store it in its crop. And a crop is a sack at the bottom of the esophagus. It can also soften hard food with its mucus. Uh, the food goes into the glandular stomach, which is a tube-like area that produces a large amount of digestive juices, and the food then passes through the gizzard, where it's ground up. And for folks that uh, eat uh, chicken and a lot of things, there's always somebody that loves gizzards. Uh, we stopped. I was with um, my wife and I and Karen and Merrill Frydendahl, when we stopped in Sioux City and had deep-fried gizzards down there. Which, Wait a minute. So they chew with the gizzard? Is there stuff still in the gizzard, like the, the crunchy stuff still? It, they get that out of there, oh, we hope. So, yeah, because grain-eating birds, that's excellent, Karen, because grain-eating birds sometimes swallow small stones yeah, or little... shells or sand yeah. and t- to eat in the breaking apart of uh, hard seeds. So it's like a little grist mill in there. where they And the grinding stones in the gizzard w- will wear down eventually, and then they pass through the bird system. But hmm. I don't think these gizzards had anything in there. You, know? <laughs> you didn't break they, a tooth in other words no and my wife just thought those were some of the best things she'd ever eaten she and she and Merrill primarily they just thought those were the best thing I'm afraid I'd just soon have a chicken leg as a gizzard <laughs> but that's that's just me we we all have that part of the chicken my dad was one of 12 kids so whenever we were butchering chickens he would always eat the neck he'd always take the neck and he said when he was a boy it was just kind of always like Southwest where you just line up to get on the plane and then you just scramble for the seat. That was kind of, he said, at meals. It was just like there was a starter gun fired and everybody went, and he said the neck was always there. So he would take the neck because he knew there'd be no scrapping over the neck. People (laughs) go, ugh. And he said, you know, after so many years eating that, 
he grew to really like the neck. <laughs> so then he would eat the neck on purpose. And we were all more than happy to give him the neck. We said, there you go, Dad. We saved this for you. We were I thought so... people used to give that to the dog or something, wasn't it? I don't know. Yeah, our poor dog. But, you know, in those days you just threw the chicken bones because nobody knew that wasn't hope... good for that yeah. they'd choke or anything. And they just crunch, crunch, and ate it all down. And nobody thought anything about it then. But, uh, yeah, my dad was a chicken neck fella, so he just loved chicken neck. and. There's not much meat on those things. I've tried eating them, and they taste all right. But, man, there's a, a lot of gnawing without getting a whole lot, I thought. Now you know what a dog does, right? Yeah, I mean, isn't right. that what they get a bone and they gnaw on it for a while? I had some um, barbecued ribs yesterday, and they were so good. I gnawed on the bones quite a bit. <clears throat> there would be my teeth marks on those bones, I think. It was just, oh, I love... Um, I love certain kinds of barbecue ribs and don't have them very often, but I had some yesterday, a little bit of a celebration, and man, were they good. I just, mm. and then you, you know, you make sounds while you're eating. <laughs> After a while, too, you catch yourself and you're going, <laughs> yeah, and you're just you're growling at somebody next to you if they get a little too close and snapping at them, and yeah. <laughs> well, I hope everybody gets out and, uh, you know, takes a stroll or something. It's really, go out to Rasmussen Woods and see it. Maybe you can hear that, uh, that beautiful little tufted titmouse out there. That'd be really cool. Or Mediopa, I've seen some great pictures people have of the bison out there as well. So it'd be a nice place to go. Hey, I've got a couple jokes from John too. I didn't read earlier. Why did the whale buy a violin? Oh, why did the whale buy a violin? I don't know. So it could be in the orchestra. Get it, oh, orca? an orchestra. Oh, and he wrote, man. orca is a type of whale, and I knew that. And then the other one is, why did the man fall down the well? I don't know. Because he couldn't see that well. <laughs> oh, man. John, those were particularly good, I thought. He couldn't see that well. Yeah, man. I thought that was a good one, too. John ought to come to the cafe today. That'd What's be, going on there? He'd fit right in there. He would. Uh, he'd rattle off a couple of these, and he would be like a like a minor god there from that <laughs> point on. Um, at the cafe where the food chain is missing a few links, the special is always Heimlich maneuver and gravy is considered a beverage, and now featuring authentic leftovers with less hair in the food and real cup holders, where grease is good and none of the food smells like feet. Well, hardly any of it. Uh, Work had taken me to Nashville, Tennessee, and as I visited here and there in September, I thought of an old Lovin' Spoonful song, uh, which included these lyrics. Uh, The title of it was Nashville Cats. Well, well, there's 1,352 guitar pickers in Nashville, and they can pick more notes than the number of ants on a Tennessee anthill. I think that uh, 1,352 was a pretty low estimate of the guitar pickers in Nashville. I think I saw that many as I roamed around. Everywhere I went, there was someone picking and singing. There wasn't anybody dancing, though. Hmm. And I, I had a car when I was in high school. I'd have saved a lot of money by not having one, but there were some advantages, and all the advantages were girls. One day, some girls wanted to go to Herberger's, so I drove them to Herberger's. And inside the <laughs> store, they took turns pressing the tops of 
perfume atomizers oh. and dancing in the sprays mist. Yes. So maybe guitar pickers should add atomizers to encourage dancing. <laughs> Remember, folks, Heartland is well worth driving past. Uh, do something wild today. Get out there and look at a bird. Uh, Karen, thank you uh, very, very much. It's always great being in your company. And please, everyone, uh, support KMSU. It's great radio. That's right. The Pledge Drive is coming up starting next week. Thanks, Al. We will chat with you coming up again next Tuesday. Until then, happy bird watching. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Our good friend Al Bat joining us from somewhere near Heartland, Minnesota.